0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stephen Tegel about his essay, Notes on Looking Back, which appeared in issue 22 of The Common. Stephen Tegel is the recipient of fellowships from the Institute of Current World Affairs, Asian American Writers Workshop, Lambda Liber- Literary, and Fulbright Greece, as well as a Soros Fellowship for New Americans. A graduate of the UMass Amherst MFA program, he has been published in the Los Angeles Review of Books, The Rumpus, Hobart, Them, and Nea Estia. Originally from California, he now lives in Greece. Stephen Tegel, thanks for joining us
0: yeah, hi, Emily. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. it's It's so terrific to be on the other side of this.
1: Would you set the scene for our conversation, Just describe sort of where you're living, where you're calling from? Yeah, of
0: course. So I'm uh, speaking to you uh, from Alexandrupoli, which is a city in uh, the most northeastern corner of Greece. Uh, it's a place, a part of the mainland that most uh, most Americans and many Greeks have not been. Uh, it's bordered by uh, Bulgaria and Turkey, and uh, I'm Alexandrupoli is sort of a small little town with um, just pretty much one main street along the sea and then one north or, north-south street. And, um, you know, it's a small, quiet little town with uh, bike lanes, and um, there's a large uh, police and soldier presence because they kind of guard the border um, but it has all the necessities that you, you would need, um, lots of cute little places to eat and have coffee. Uh, and it's sort of the gateway to um, these kind of beautiful uh, little, little villages in the most, the most uh, north, northeast corner of, uh, of Greece.
1: Wow, that sounds really interesting. That is a very exotic locale to be calling from for a podcast. (laughs) Um, I would love if you would start us off with a reading from your essay. Would you do the first few paragraphs for us?
0: Of course, I'd be happy to. Okay, so these are the first two paragraphs of notes on looking back. Last year, I wandered through Greece, knocking on all the gates of Hades. I walked along the Acheron River, whose icy blue waters seemed colored by the spirits of the dead. Stalactites dripped onto the back of my neck as a silent boatman ferried me through the caves of Diros. I searched for the entrance to the sea cave at Cape Tanaron, scrambling over sharp rocks below the lighthouse as darkness fell. Sometimes I wondered if my search for the underworld tempted the fates. I remembered Orpheus, the father of music, who charmed beasts with his lyre and descended into Teneron to find his lost bride, Eurydice. With song, he implored Hades and Persephone to bring her back to life, and his words moved the deathless gods to tears. They granted his wish, allowing him to lead her out of the underworld on one condition. He must walk ahead of her, not looking back until they left the dark halls of death. Approaching the surface, the farthest reach of light, Orpheus feared his love's silence behind him. He turned to look and saw her sink back to the depths, reaching out to him and bidding him farewell, for the last time. Retelling this myth, I'm amazed that in Greek, the word death, thanatos, has not changed in almost three millennia. Homer used the same word in the 8th century BCE to describe the warriors who fell like leaves in the Iliad. He called the sea Thalassa and man andra, just as Greeks do today. I have traveled extensively through Greece to visit mythological sites, but Greek mythology exists within the language too. Modern Greek evolved from ancient Greek, so it retains a connection to the Olympian gods that then passed into English. For example, the word panic, panikos in Greek, has its roots in the name of the god Pan and means sudden and unexplained fear or awe, the same feeling that the protector of shepherds and hunters inspires in those who enter his realm. The words music, musiki in Greek, and museum, museo, come from the nine muses, goddesses of the arts and sciences, the source of inspiration for poets, dancers, and musicians.
1: Thank you so much for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your essay yet, would you just describe generally what the piece is about? Yeah,
0: sure. So this essay is sort of a love letter to Greece and also to the Greek language. It's about my, my love and fascination for the sounds that certain letters and certain combinations of letters make in Greek words, and also how many Greek words sort of if you break them up into their roots and suffixes and prefixes, they they create a story um, that describe the meaning of each word. And the essay is also an exploration of how living in Greece has has transformed me personally and how it's transformed my writing.
1: That's great. I know you originally wrote this essay a few, a few years ago now, but, you know, before the pandemic. And and of course, after two years of pandemic life, it was such a pleasure to read about the, these travels that you have around Greece and, and all the meeting new people and being adopted by families and invited to holiday meals. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how Greece has weathered the pandemic, like what it's, what it's been like there.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, so I feel like Greece, I was very impressed by how Greece handled the pandemic. Um, you know, I feel like um, Greece is a small country, and, um, you know, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, you wouldn't have expected um, this, this sort of really comprehensive uh, response that the, the Greek government has made. But, um, you know, when the, even before, the, the first case was um, found in Greece. There was a plan put in action where they identified certain hospitals throughout the country that would take in COVID patients. Um, they, there was a big jump in sort of digitization of uh, kind of government services and COVID-related processes during the pandemic. So, for example, uh, during the lockdown, which began in, in March, we had to send a text message to the government, uh, in order to go grocery shopping, to go to, um, you know, to the grocery store or, or to a pharmacy, mm-hmm. and that kind of I guess tracked how many people were out at any one time, and sort of, um, you know, made sure that there weren't too many people out in a specific uh, area, and mm-hmm. then also with the with the vaccination campaign, um, you know, they had this really um, kind of high tech system where. Uh, you can just really very, very easily make an appointment online, find a place near you that has appointments available and schedule your appointment. And then they give you a digital certificate that you can keep on your phone so that um, in or- right now, in order to enter a cafe, most indoor spaces, a restaurant, a movie theater, you have to show your vaccination certificate. So mm-hmm. um, they have this app that scans your QR code and validates your certificate Um And so they check um, each person who enters uh, an indoor space like that, which Mm is, you know, makes you feel really, really comfortable, like really safe.
1: Mm. That's great. Wow. I mean, it seems like that has been a fairly good place to weather the pandemic.
0: (laughs) It has. I mean, the the only thing is that you're right. It has been really hard to travel, especially during lockdown. You weren't allowed to leave your, uh, your kind of region or prefecture. So I, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, I got my, I had this really little apartment in Athens and I, uh, specifically, got an apartment that small because I thought I would be traveling all the time. But uh, mm-hmm. during the pandemic, for about you know a year and a half, I was I was stuck in that little apartment, sitting at my kitchen table all day, and that mm-hmm. was a big uh, change from the the lifestyle that you read about in my essay.
1: <laughs> yes. So, just because I'm I'm really curious, can you tell us how you ended up living in Greece? Like, did did you first go on a Fulbright?
0: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it's it's kind of amazing because. Five years ago, before before I came to Greece on my Fulbright, I I knew relatively little about the country. I mean, my idea of it was, you know, the Acropolis, um, you know, Mykonos and Santorini, kind of the (laughs) the most basic, and Greek mythology, which I've loved ever since I was little. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the project that I proposed for my Fulbright was to um, visit places in Greece related to Greek myths. And that connected to my writing because when I was, um, during my final years at in the MFA program at UMass Amherst, I was really thinking about how to uh, retell Greek myths and fairy tales um, and to sort of queer them or to explore <laughs> is- other issues of identity that um, aren't usually covered in uh, in, in these older myths, so how to how to refresh them, how to renew them, and also how to use them to explore personal narratives um, in in the metaphorical sense. So, I became really invested in um, in these myths, which I you know I've loved since I was a kid. And it during my Fulbright, it was so such a powerful experience to visit uh, these dramatic landscapes in Greece. I think people. Um, you know, unless you've traveled a lot in Greece, it's hard to understand just how uh, how diverse the landscapes are here. In addition, you know, in addition to the islands and the beaches, um, there are mountains, there are gorges, waterfalls. um, There are some islands that are much greener. There are islands that are more desert-like. And I think one thing that I really discovered is that it makes sense why the ancient Greeks um, created gods that were related to natural phenomena because um, the natural elements of the country its dramatic cliffs and powerful sunsets and uh, kind of its rivers, its waterfalls they have such a visceral power and you know if you go to an olive grove where the olive trees are like thousands of years old and they're huge and gnarled they have this physical presence um where you could see how they could be related to nymphs or to satyrs or to gods so um, i was really overwhelmed by by the nature in greece
1: yeah, that's such, that's such an interesting point. I, I I bet you're right. You know that they would they would see all those things and and put them into their myths and into their gods. Um, I'm, I'm sort of curious. Like, what do you think would surprise people about life in Greece? Like, either your daily life or, or the the daily life of people in Greece.
0: Hmm. I would say. I feel like in in some ways. I mean, one thing that really surprised me is just. How, first of all, how welcoming people are. Um, this the sense of uh, philoxenia or Greek hospitality it's something that you hear about, but just to, to see it in action and to find, kind of be welcomed by people here um, was something that it always continues to surprise me. Like, for example, I, you know, today, I went up to these villages in, in uh, the northern part of Evros. Uh, because today is uh, the Theophania or Epiphany, and it's um, sort of a uh, like a sort of a religious holiday. But they there are certain traditions that the d- different villages have. Um, usually, in most places, um, there's sort of a, this diving for the cross. So um, the a priest will go to uh, a beach, a port. Uh, a river, and they will give a blessing and sort of bless the waters and they will throw a cross uh, into the water. And then and then you have uh, like a group of young men usually who dive into the water um, to retrieve the cross. And mm-hmm. it has to do with the blessing of the water, with sort of water being related to life. And um, especially for farmers here, they're, they're, and there's a lot of agriculture in this uh, area. So it's sort of... Uh, really important for the annual cycle of the crops and for um, kind of the cycle of life uh, in the new year. Um, so I, I went up to this village called uh, Dadia and I didn't know anyone, but um, you know, one of um, the president of the Ethnological Museum here in uh gave me this tip. He was like, uh, you know, they're doing a very rare tradition uh, today in this village. So you, you have to go. So I went with my camera. I just kind of showed up at the church at 10am. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I made a couple of friends who just after, you know, they saw that I was new there, they invited me for coffee. And we hung out throughout the day and followed these activities that were happening in the village. Uh, I went to this, uh, this woman's house, and her mother fed me. And uh, I'm going to go back, I think, in two weeks for another Um, another traditional uh, kind of feast or or, uh, tradition. And so there's just this way, I mean, no matter how many times it happens, and people have been so hospitable to me um, in the years since I've been here, it's just, I think it's always still such a surprise. And so Mm -hmm. um, kind of, they're so different from anything I'm used to to experiencing. Um, Just the way that people will sort of infold you into their lives, uh, and kind of take you under their wing.
1: Yeah. It sounds kind of magical, honestly. (laughs) Um, I I, I I definitely got that. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely got that sense. Uh, you know, reading your essay that the way that people would be so welcoming, it sounds lovely. Uh, there is so much love of Greece and, and for the Greek language in this piece, and, and it really reads like a, like a love letter to those things. And I enjoyed the, the inclusion of mythology, as you mentioned, those figures sort of drifting in and out of the piece. What inspired you to start work on this essay? So
0: uh, I began this essay in 2018 when I was living in New York. I, I had just finished my, uh, my Fulbright, and I'd come back to finish a fellowship with the Asian American Writers Workshop. And so I just come back from Greece and I was missing it so much. Um, and I was also kind of afraid that I was quickly losing the, the Greek language skills that I developed during my uh, my year in Greece. So I think that fear, that longing to return, uh, and also reading uh, Jubal Hiri's book, In Other Words, uh in which she describes her efforts to learn Italian and uh, she wrote the book in Italian and it was translated into English. Um, you know, reading about, you know, sort of her daring to do that uh, motivated me to, to try my hand at it in Greek and see what would come out because uh, until then I'd really uh, mostly used Greek as sort of a, an everyday tool uh, to get by, to, to, to speak with people, but I hadn't really tried to use the language in a more, uh, artistic and considered way. And so, you know, I had also always wanted to do, uh, some translation from Greek into English or from English into Greek. And, uh, I'd never thought that I had reached a point where I, where I, um, felt comfortable doing that, but for some reason, um, sort of using my own words or experiences as material made it seem easier for me to take that leap. Mm. Um, and so I think the, that combination of things, um, it was an exercise to, to keep my Greek up and a way to connect with this country that I uh, felt so sort of indebted to and have felt such a connection to.
1: Oh, I love that. So normally, this is where I would ask if the piece came together quickly or not. But, but you also you sort of tangle with that process right in the text of the essay itself. Uh, you talk about sort of free writing the first draft and enjoying the words, and then not wanting to revise it, then struggling to revise it. Uh, what can, What can you tell us about the process of writing this sort of writing an essay, but also writing in a second language, um, just in general?
0: Yes, I mean it was, it was, it was a you know. Uh, it took about a year, or a little bit longer than a year, and I think it—it um, it was sort of—it was a process that covered a gamut of emotions. There was sort of this euphoria or this freedom of being able to write in Greek, even though I was writing slowly. Uh, and I also, for this essay, I sort of changed up my um, my writing process in that. I was writing on my, um, on my iPad and, uh, usually I had my iPad and then I had my Greek English dictionary next to me and I would just kind of turn back and forth from one to another. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason I, I was writing on my iPad is because, um, I could write on the keyboard there in Google docs and, um, the Apple iOS would help me with the autocomplete of the word. So <laughs> I th- that made it much easier to write in Greek and to write sort of correctly without misspellings. Um, mm-hmm. I think when I type uh, in Word onto my computer, I'm, I feel much more alone. <laughs> so That's so there interesting. Was, there was that kind of uh, sort of technological thing that, that helped process-wise. Um, and I thought, so I was just kind of like, you know, typing very slowly, sort of with uh, two fingers, pretty much. And uh, I was kind of writing at the pace of thinking because in Greek, I feel like I formed the sentences uh, more slowly, and so I was able to sort of keep the pace in that way. Um, And so then it felt like, after a while, it felt like an essay that I could just keep writing and writing and just keep adding paragraphs to. (laughs) And there was this, just this really interesting phenomenon where if I spent too much time away from a certain part of the essay, it would sort of translate itself back out of my understanding. So Mm -hmm. after a while, these paragraphs that I had written would kind of become mysterious to me again or become almost undecipherable. So there was sort of this time... I felt like there was this time pressure to finish the essay before I sort of forgot what uh, what exactly I had written. Um, and it, I think what I struggled most with was to sort of um, look at the essay, kind of step back from the essay, look at it holistically, and then figure out what would be a fitting end uh, for the piece. Um, because it's sort of took me out of having my, my face so close to the essay and just sort of creating new material, but then Mm -hmm. having to step back and sort of synthesize it, um, which I I guess I wasn't, uh, I didn't have experience doing in Greek Mm -hmm. and then sort of finding a way to Mm -hmm. structurally bring it to a close. Um, so that's what I struggled with in the last, in the last few months. Um,
1: well, the good news is you came to a great ending.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: So you have so many publications, and it, re- it really feels like you've been living the writer life for for years, you know, since you graduated. I wonder if you have any advice for emerging writers, sort of thinking about what a life committed to writing really looks like.
0: Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, it's, I feel like I'm still figuring that out in some it, Um, (laughs) In many ways. But I feel like it's, I mean, one of my instructors, uh, my undergrad writing instructors from Stanford told me that uh, writing, the writing life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So, um, you know, take your time with your work. Um, Mm -hmm. Take time um, building experiences, which are sort of the, the foundation for my writing, at least. Um, And since I've been in Greece, uh, I've tried every day to sort of keep a journal of what I observe, people I meet, uh, things I witness. And uh, that has kind of grown into multiple Google Docs of (laughs) these sort of captain's logs. Um, I feel like writing is, the writing life is harder than I imagined it would be when I first started out. Um, You have to deal with a lot of rejection um, a lot of time just by yourself, uh, sitting with your butt in your chair and trying to make something work. And I think the th- the thrilling thing and the frustrating thing about writing is that the challenges that you face are, are always different. Um, you know, every every piece of writing presents new challenges. And that's why writing is always exciting. And it's also, why it can be frustrating. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, and I think I think as a writer, you are constantly walking this tightrope between time and money. Um, you need to have enough time to write and devote to your craft, uh, and at the same time, you have to put food on the table. So, um, for me, you know, I've sort of vastly between um, going on these. Uh, year or two year long fellowships, which I, I've been um, very fortunate to receive mm-hmm. from different organizations, but also, um, you know, trying to find work that um, will, will satisfy me uh, creatively, um, will, but will also give me enough time to work on my own work. And, you know, it's a, it's a constant challenge, but I think you, you um, for many, for many writers, I think it's, writing is a sort of necessity. It's not a, a luxury. And so I think you, you make time to do the work so that you can express yourself and connect with other people. And that that is its own reward, I think.
1: So you write a, across a lot of different genres. You've done some more journalistic work and, and you write fiction and poetry too. And One thing I, I read of yours just in preparing for this that, that really stayed with me was an, an essay about the time you spent with refugees in a camp in Greece. It was mm-hmm. really, really moving. And I wondered if, if you would just talk a little bit about that piece and that experience.
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, this, this essay, uh, which was uh, published in the Los Angeles Review of Books, it, it's uh, called under the shadow flag, uh, a week in the Basilica refugee camp. And this was actually one of the first experiences I had um, during my Fulbright when I when I moved to Greece. I went up with a, a group of friends to Thessaloniki and there was a camp just outside of the city um, where refugees were being kept. And it, what was amazing to me was that it felt like a completely different world from... Um, Thessaloniki, which is Greece's second largest city. It's um, a city by the sea. It's beautiful, uh, has great food and dessert, you know, but uh, the camp was its own small sort of enclosed world. It was, um, I think, built on, um, it was like an old factory that was uh, sort of like a military camp. And there were lines of tents inside of these Sort of abandoned uh, bunkers or warehouses, and mm-hmm. there was a um, sort of a, a makeshift day camp that um, these this NGO had built across the street in sort of a uh, this yard, um, and they offered sort of they had a women's space, they had a They created a little kitchen where um, the refugees could come and cook and also uh, different activities for the young children who were living in the camp. And so um, we went there for a week. It was a a group of us, and we uh, helped out at the camp, taught a little bit of English, participated in the um, activities that they held there. But we were also trying to, um, you know, speak with the migrants learn about their journeys um and see what they um what they had in mind for their futures like what their hopes were uh and why they had decided to make this really difficult journey and i uh i took my camera there i um i took a lot of photos while i was there and you know you make you get to make really strong relationships, um, with the people you meet there as well. I think I was just blown away by the way that, uh, these families would invite us into their tents, make us tea, offer us, um, whatever food they had. You know, I think even though, um, they didn't have much, there was also with them this really strong sense of hospitality and that we were sort of entering their home and they kept Mm. their tents as clean as possible. They were constantly um, wiping, sweeping the floor, cleaning the dishes. Um, And this space really did feel like a little home. And so we got to know uh, this this family really well. Um, And the nice thing was that we were able, I was able to keep up with them uh, throughout my Fulbright, like when they moved to Athens at one point, and they were staying uh, in an apartment not far from where I was staying, and uh, I, I took the two uh, little kids out to, to see the Star Wars movie I um,
1: awesome.
0: <laughs> came out, and so it, it's been really nice to be able to keep in touch uh, with them, uh, even after this experience.
1: Wow, that's so interesting to hear. I'll definitely, I'm going to link to that essay in in the show notes because like you said, the photos you took were beautiful and and it's a great essay.
0: Thank you so much, Emily.
1: So I'm sure our listeners won't know this. You sort of mentioned it in the beginning, but but you were once long ago before my time an intern at The Common and, and you spearheaded the launch of The Common's first podcast series, which was called Contributors in Conversation. Um, I feel like what we're doing now is really like the reboot of that. <laughs> um, what can you tell us about your time at the common and, and, and about working on the podcast?
0: So I, I had such a great time working at the common. Um, you know it's when I started my MFA program uh, in 2013, I really wanted to to gain some experience working for a really cool literary magazine and I, I was so fortunate to connect with Jen. At th- I think at this time, the Common had had maybe, five, maybe four or five issues out at that point, but it already <laughs> had this very distinct style. Um, you know, From the beginning, it had these really eye-catching, colorful, colorful covers that focused mm-hmm. on a single object. Um, I read the first couple issues, and they, the work in there really grabbed me because I think uh, a sense of place is, is something that's really overlooked... In fiction, but something that cont- contributes so much to the environment and the atmosphere of an essay or a story, um, and so uh, I was really, really excited to be a part of the magazine. And uh, at first, I was working as the um, publicity and uh, events coordinator, and so I was putting on different events uh, in uh, in Amherst. Uh, for launches of the magazine, and so in that way, it helped me to get to know um, the community uh, nice. in in northampton and in amherst and then i I was talking with Jen, and um, we were really excited about putting together a podcast uh, to as another way of engaging with the material in the magazine to provide sort of um, yeah extra extra information, extra insight into the pieces in each mm-hmm. issue and um, for me, it was so exciting to be able to connect with the contributors through the podcast because I just I love the work that was published uh, so much and so it also gave me this extra insight to be able to speak with them and uh, to help to put together the podcast i think I think the way that we were doing it was. More, more complicated than, uh, it was a little bit difficult to do all the editing and, um, the cutting down and things like that. Um, but I'm so happy that, um, you sort of resurrected it. And I think this format is, uh, is really, really great.
1: Oh, thanks. I, yeah, I really I definitely feel like the thing that I get out of it is that opportunity to, to engage again, like you said, with the material, because, you know, we spend so long working on this material, especially the, the material and the issue, you know, it goes through so many edits and and we love it so much. And then it goes out into the world and you don't really get to talk about it again with people. So um, it's such a treat to be able to follow up with with the, with the authors of that work, you know three months or six months after it came out and, and, and dive into it again and hope that the other people will do the same. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it really also um, inspires sort of uh, a deeper dive into the material and uh, additional discussions about issues related to, to each, each piece in the magazine. So I love that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so one last question, what are you working on now? Like what's next from you?
0: So um, the reason that I'm in Alexandrupoli is because um, I am on a fellowship right now with this organization in Washington, D.C. called the Institute of Current World Affairs. Um, It's a very small organization, but they've been around for about 100 years. And each year they choose um, two or three people to send uh, anywhere in the world to pursue a project for two years. So right now there's... um, there's a fellow in India, there's a fellow in Turkey, um, there's a fellow in West Africa, and then there's me in Greece. And so I have, I have two years to pursue a project in Greece of, of my choosing. And I decided that I wanted to do a deep dive into Greece's borders um, because I've spent most of my time living in the two biggest cities in Greece, um, Athens and Thessaloniki in the north. Um, but I really wanted to get a sense of what life is like sort of on the periphery and especially in islands and, um, and sort of in villages, um, that border other countries that, that have experienced this sort of, um, trends of migration, uh, mixing of cultures. And, um, I think that Greece is also this really, um, it's a, it's in this very strategic place in the Eastern Mediterranean, at the crossroads between Europe, uh, Eurasia, and Africa. Mm-hmm. And so, historically, there's been a lot of movement um, across across Greece and across um, the modern modern borders of Greece. Um, so, as part, this is a writing fellowship. So, every month, I publish. Um, uh, a dispatch or, or an essay about something I've learned uh, during the month in, uh, in each of these places. So I'm spending eight months uh, in Evros and Alexandrupoli, eight months in the Northeastern Aegean islands of Hios and Lesvos, mm-hmm. and then eight months in Crete. Um, so mm-hmm. my first couple, I started this fellowship in October. My first couple dispatches have been sort of an introduction to uh, the province of Evros, um, an exploration of the historical and cultural ties between uh, Istanbul and uh, and Thrace. And then um, I have I have an article that's coming out in a couple of days which will be about uh, the port of Alexandrupoli, the increased u uh, s military presence there, and how um, that investment is uh, providing new opportunities for locals there so for the next two years I'll be writing these dispatches every month and uh, I also really want to collect material for a book over the next two years so that's I what was I'm gonna, gonna say
1: that sounds like a book where those okay <laughs> oh, good, good I'm glad where are those dispatches and essays published there online
0: yeah they're they're online at um, icwa.org. Uh, and so there's a page for each of the fellows, and you can find uh, my dispatches there.
1: Great. We will definitely link to that. That sounds so great. Um, Perfect. That's a, yeah, a brilliant project. Stephen Tegel, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great talking with you.
0: Emily, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast.
1: Listeners, you can read Stephen's essay, Notes on Looking Back, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.